and welcome to the Busyness Podcast. My name is Emily Austin. I'm the founder and CEO of a London-based PR agency called Emerge. I'm passionate about launching and scaling small businesses and have been fortunate enough in my 13-year career to work with some of the most exciting, category-defining brands in the world. I started my business when I was 22 years old, fresh out of university. Since that time, the world has got louder. Our expectations have become greater and our lives have become busier. Fobbing friends off with the stop answer we've all become accustomed to, I'm so busy, is an attempt to compel, conflate and convince. But when did being too busy become a mark of status? Why is the goal to never have any free time? And just what the fuck is everyone doing? Are we setting unrealistic expectations for future entrepreneurs and business owners by encouraging them that a maniacal approach to diarising is the standard? This podcast aims to give you a realistic, detailed insight into the honest stories, the failures, the triumphs, the intricacies, the mistakes, the comebacks, the fuck-ups from those set to make their mark, the leaders, movers and shakers, trailblazers and game changers. We cover imposter syndrome, hiring and firing, call-out culture, anxiety, global growth, daily routines and knowing when to quit, choosing the best in the busyness to help you cut through the noise and optimise your success. Brand and retail expert Millie Kendall co-founded the British Beauty Council in 2018 off the back of an enviable 20-year career. Having been instrumental in the success of brands such as L'Occitane and Aveda, launching her own cosmetics brand, Ruby and Millie, running her own PR and communications agency, she has also received an MBE for her services to the cosmetic industry. Millie launched the British Beauty Council with a mission to support and champion the best interests of the British beauty industry. Despite being the epitome of busy, Millie kindly sat down with me to chat about being a storyteller and why talking and listening to people is integral to creating the best ideas. We discussed how social media has transformed the beauty and wellness industry, why doing something well doesn't necessarily mean it was easy, and why we should always sleep on important decisions. Millie spoke candidly about the effects of politics on business, having the right intentions when starting out, and how the British Beauty Council is future-proofing the beauty and wellness industry. It was so interesting to chat to Millie and listen to the insights and experiences from her exceptional career. I would love if we could kick off by you telling me more about what the British Beauty Council is and what your role within the business is. So the British Beauty Council is an advocacy group that is representing the uh, very wide and very nuanced industry, beauty, hair, beauty and wellness industry. You know, we've got a very diverse, very complicated industry that didn't really, before the British Beauty Council, have um, an organisation, an NGO, essentially, that looked out for its best interests. So that's what we do. Um, and I am the CEO and one of the co-founders. And so your career obviously is um, impressive and long before you set up the British Beauty Council. You've been instrumental in the success of brands such as Aveda and L'Occitane. You started your own incredibly successful makeup brand, Ruby and Millie. You started Beauty Mart, which paved the way for a new retail approach. 
um, which is now emulated uh, across the globe in the way that people shop. And then you founded your own PR agency in 2015. So, um, so you're busy. Uh, can you tell me a bit more about what you were doing before you started this current job and what your journey to, to becoming CEO so, I mean, I guess I sort of grew up in the industry and I sort of dabbled in a lot of different careers. I always say I'm a bit of a master of, uh, jack of all trades, master of none. I actually had an air PR agency in the 90s as well. So PR's always been sort of the underlying, the sort of foundation of everything that I've done. But when I either work with a brand or launch something myself or develop something, even like the British Beauty Council, what I bring to it personally is the concept and the amplification of the message. I really only ever like to do things that are sort of really renegade and disruptive and interesting. So I'm quite specific in the kind of projects I decide to work on because I'm. it's usually something that I've made up out of nothing, out of nowhere. And, and then you start talking to people and you're not always the only person that's had the idea, but I'm usually the one that brings it to market because I'm quite... I just work hard. Do you know what I mean? I like to get stuff done. Do you think that understanding of the marketing and PR side has been integral to being able to convince people to buy into these ideas and to be able to actually bring them to market? Because a lot of people who run businesses have co-founders because one person is much more business and idea oriented and someone else is kind of the glitz and the glamour of the PR and marketing and brand. It seems like you've got the capacity to do both. Do you think that's been quite important in, in the way that you've launched businesses? Yeah, I mean, I guess I've got a sort of reasonably even balance of both. I'm not physically creative. So I'm, you know, in our industry, I'm not um, I'm not creative in a sense where I, I can't really do makeup very well. I can do half a face, but not half, all of it. I'm not very good at cutting hair. I can't, you know, I'm not practically creative. Um, like all of my very dear friends are, but I can visually see something and I can kind of tell a story around it so I can verbalize it, vocalize it, amplify it. When you've come up with these ideas and felt that they might be interesting, they might not exist, they might be able to be, there might be a gap in the market. What's been your process of stress testing that? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of forethought that goes into it, a lot of talking to people. I'm very social. I talk to a lot of people. I mean, part of my job in the with the British Beauty Council is really to talk and listen, listen to people, you know, is to hear what people have to say. And I think that if you listen enough to what people have to say, you can pretty quickly turn it into a reasonably good idea. And then if people that you know are equally disruptive and change makers say, oh, my God, that's such a great idea then it's a goer. Yeah, that's sort of enough. You've got your proof of concept. It's, you can't really prove something until you've done it. It's so difficult to do that. If you're, if you're trying to prove it to such a degree, then all you're doing is drawing from other people's experience and it's not unique and it's not there's no niche because somebody's already done it before. You can really only go on instinct. I mean, I think I'm quite, I, I've got a reasonably good instinct as to what needs to happen next. I, what I'm not very good at is the sort of, always at the strategy i can see it when somebody explains it to me but what i'll i'll do is i'll brain dump a load of stuff and somebody needs to organize it have you always been entrepreneurial have you always wanted to do your own thing or have you had bosses in the past and if so kind of how, how's that how's that been i mean I, I actually um the best job i ever had was when i wasn't in charge <laughs> it was there was no pressure at all um no there was pressure that's not true but it was the best job i've ever had i had so much fun uh, I worked for Shuemura, a Japanese cosmetic company. I love that job. I mean, I was the manager, but, you know, I wasn't 
it wasn't my business. And I guess I sort of accidentally ended up being an entrepreneur, having my own business. I hate the word entrepreneur in a weird way, but having my own business. And it's just always been like that. And and then you get to an, a point when you're sort of in your mid-30s where you're just unemployable because you just, you know, I just sit in the office and I talk as loudly as I want and I swear all the time and I just do whatever I, I think is the right thing to do. And then, you know, I'm never going to be able to get a job anyway now. And and now with the British Beauty Council, it's not my it's not my business. It's not my business. It's it's a, an NGO, and we have a chairperson who I report into, and they're there to support me, but also to manage me to make sure that I don't do anything completely ridiculously wrong. So in a weird way, I've sort of come full circle. We hear all the time about you know in sort of very well rehearsed PR interviews that business owners have started something because it was their passion and because they stumbled upon it at a time when they really needed it. Being a CEO in, in the way that you are now with the British Beauty Council, as you say, it's not kind of completely yours and it's made up of um, lots of people who contribute and is much more of a community. Um, is it difficult running that, knowing it's not completely yours? Yeah, that's interesting. It was a bit of a learning curve, yeah. Actually, I think I only a couple of times thought about doing something that was that you would have thought about if you were an entrepreneur. So I don't think I sort of tripped up too many times. Um, in, in we've, we're three years old now. Um, but we, we sort of built this um, together and we created it from nothing. So there wasn't really a model of this before. So because I'm so intrinsically linked to how we developed it, I know my place and um, I mean, but I also have another business. I mean, I have my own private business that I, that I run alongside it. And maybe I think very, very early on, somebody said to me, this is not your business. You can't run it like your business. It's something that you're going to have to learn to do. Um, It will be difficult at first. And actually that just stuck in my mind. And I was very careful not to make decisions that were, you know, strategic decisions that were just mine. You know, I have a board to report to. And so I can I can make everyday business decisions, essentially. But what I can't do is I can't make strategic decisions and change the course or the direction of the organisation. Did you have doubts at the beginning or did you just think, well, yeah, I mean, I've done everything else that I thought was a good idea. So I'm sure I'm sure I'll be good at this. Or were there moments where you thought, what, what the fuck am I doing? I never have doubts. I just think if I'm going to do it, I just do it. Because I know, I know a lot of times in, in business or when you develop a structure of something or an organisation, you can be quite nimble. This could have been, this could have been very small. It could have been, I could have represented just makeup artists or whatever. It could be whatever I wanted it to be. There was no prerequisite. So no, I, I really don't have doubts when I do things like this. Have you failed in your career? Have you had ideas that uh, didn't make it that you you just you don't talk about now? Yeah, I mean, I guess it, there's a funny one with um, we launched Ruby and Millie in 97, 98. And um, it was around the sort of heyday of the Spice Girls and their management company. They asked if we would develop a lip gloss because we had these lip glosses that were getting a lot of press. And uh, I guess Victoria Beckham, Victoria at the time, Posh Spice at the time, I bought one in Manchester and really liked it and they asked if we would develop one with her and call it posh spice lip gloss and I laughed on the phone I was like 
no way, no, not happening. And I just thought, oh, God, if I'd have had a garage full of those right now, that would have been, they would have been quite valuable, wouldn't they? But 1990, like, that is a long time ago by by any kind of standard, particularly in an industry that has innovated so much in, during that time. In With the rise of social media and the lowering of barriers to entry across free marketing platforms like Instagram being the obvious one, and TikTok probably as a relevant, uh, a recent um, contender, there are so many examples of particularly women and particularly mothers creating brands that fit within the beauty category from the kitchen table from the home but that is a very that's a relatively new phenomenon for you 20 odd years you know ago with this business presumably that was very disruptive and unique at a time when big corporates were kind of ruling that space yeah I mean we had investment of about seven million pounds into the brand it was unheard of at the time and and nowadays it's difficult to get investment there's sort of so many prerequisites you oftentimes have to sit in a room in front of men selling your wares and oh it's very difficult the whole game's change but we were just so lucky I don't know it was just the right time I mean I think now if you, if you think about the formulations and the product itself and how it looked and the concept of it you know it was it was a black girl and a white girl you know it was really inclusive we had really a, a really wide color range it was very um trans the packaging was transparent because we wanted people to really see what they got you know it almost ticked every box that you have to tick now but you know in the late 90s so I just said that you know there are things that I want and I won't do it unless I can get what I want because I just wouldn't have done it for less I was I didn't want to launch a range with two products I wanted to launch a range with 365 <laughs> products and I wanted it to be big and I wanted it to launch in Boots a Chemist, which nobody had ever done that before. That was pretty revolutionary. And then I had this idea that if I launched it in Harvey Nichols and Selfridges and then went to Boots, that would be really revolutionary. Now now people do that all the time. I forget how sometimes that was quite, you know, disruptive. Yeah. For a modern brand, for for a new beauty brand in this in this category, there is uh, there are a multitude of boxes that need to be ticked or at least considered or have manifestos or considerations or ideas or understandings. And lots of businesses now have to be on the front foot with regards to inclusivity and and sustainability, um, etc. Why do you think it's taken so long for that to be as loud as it is now when you were doing it 20 years ago? Oh, that's a really good question. I guess... In a lot of ways, I think that we sort of went so far forward and then we sort of went very far back. You know, at the end of the 90s, there was a lot of sort of radicalization. You know, we were like, we were sort of, you know, we were really changing the game. You know, things were really happening. All the makeup artist brands were launching and, you know, the industry was, all the experts that were from behind the camera were coming out in the front into the front of the camera so the whole game that was changing and it was becoming really radical and like you know you just the experts were really thriving and we were just people were being exposed for the brilliant work that they did and then all of a sudden it sort of went horribly wrong not blaming it on social media at all but I do think that the game changed when social media became so widespread 
that everybody was an expert. Right. So you sort of diluted the idea of someone with 20 years experience painting the faces of the most famous people in the world because the access there was there was no hierarchy anymore yeah there was no hierarchy anymore and it was and and that challenged journalism makeup artistry hairdressing it challenged a lot I mean you could literally just talk to a camera from your bedroom and you know people would relate to you and engage with you and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that because I actually think it's quite a brilliant phenomenon because what it's done is it's allowed us to then migrate from the store environment where we might have taken consultation from a woman standing in front of a counter or behind a counter to now listening to somebody online but I but it did in the first stages cause quite a lot of problems for the industry I think and what it did was it it meant that people sort of um, migrated to little into little groups and sort of weren't mixing as much as they did. You were either following that blogger or that blogger, but very rarely would they combine. Very rarely would the audiences combine. And I thought it was, a bit, I think, a bit divisive. And I and I think that it's come a long way where we now understand it better. We can make better choices. There are controls and mechanisms so we know when somebody's being genuine or not because we know whether it's gifted or sponsored or an ad. And I just think our industry was the perfect industry, really, to adopt social media, but none of us knew how to sort of manage it. Because because I've always thought that the, the hair, beauty, and wellness industry is a really interesting industry because it really is very suitable for misfits to work in. You know, you can really express yourself. You can really... You know, you can be amongst people that are creative like you are. The people, the experts behind the scenes in a studio, um, there was always a diverse mix. It was always a very interesting mix. But then it sort of that froze a little bit. Well, the social media, I mean, I started my business in 2012 and I always feel like I kind of snuck in the back door because at that time, PR agencies and marketing agencies were figuring out how to be connected to social media and uh, in the influencer landscape. And so there was a moment where everyone was like, what the fuck is going on? And actually it was a bit of a wild west for a long time. It was like this new breed of sort of celebrities and talent. There were then agencies popping up like Gleam and other agencies that were just for kind of beauty YouTubers. And then and there was this sudden flooding of all these people that I think everyone spent a couple of years like figuring out exactly what was going on. And now with that, the tools that we have and now that the dust has settled a little bit, everyone can be a lot more directive in terms of the way that they interact with these people. And the brands that were sort of a fad have been and gone. Yeah, there's been a lot of brands that I think sort of launched on a very thin platform. They've been, either been exposed or they just disappeared overnight. And Brands that were truly inclusive, truly renegade, like the Bobby Browns and the Max and, you know, Aveda and, you know, sustainability piece, they, they've lasted. I think if you want longevity, there is something in being an expert, being transparent, being accountable. I think if you're going to fake it, you're not going to make it. There's like the brands you're mentioning and then more recently, the probably one of the best success stories would be Charlotte Tilbury as a makeup artist the most extraordinary commitment to brand and in-store experience. And and that is someone who like bided her time and waited and, and that brand sits alongside those other, those other contenders. And then you've kind of got like the Instagram brand 
Gen Z, very Instagrammable blogger business. There is a big gap between the two of them. You've then got some outliers like this sort of Kylie Jenner type influence, completely influencer backed. Does that disrupt the industry or does it, do you think it's a good thing? I think that there's always been celebrity fragrance, a, a market that, you know, you've always seen a lot of celebrities dabble in. I mean, some celebrities will do it really well. You know, the latest launch is um, Jennifer Aniston's hair brand, isn't it? I mean, you know, they will do well. You know, um, whether that is a lifelong passion of Jennifer Aniston's because of the hair thing. I know she was involved in um, Living Proof when that first launched. So, you know, maybe that is something that she's truly passionate about. I think, again, it's, it's back to intention, isn't it? It's just... You can sniff out the wrong intention a mile away. If somebody's doing it because they just want to turn a buck and they just want to sort of scam people into buying their product and then sort of walk away from it, you can sniff out. It's not, there's no real intention and passion. I mean, Rosie is an absolute, I mean, a powerhouse in terms of she knows the ingredients, she knows the formulation, she knows what she wants. She's amazing when it comes to sustainability. You can quiz her on anything to do with that product or the mechanisms for making a sustainable brand. And she will give you a really powerful, very well-versed answer. And she's not prompted or scripted. And she's probably like interacted with millions of brands, you know, not just in branding deals, but on makeup sets and shoots and travel traveling around. So she's probably done quite a lot of market research yeah I mean same with same with um Victoria Beckham beauty I mean I remember my business partner Anna uh, Anna Marie she used to be the beauty director at Vogue and I think she was writing something for the Financial Times and she interviewed Victoria Beckham about the Victoria Beckham line and I want to say it was the Estee Lauder line that she did before she did her own and she said she was so impressive I mean so impressive knew exactly what was in the product knew exactly how it was created very professional so I don't think anyone would outwardly knock a Kylie Jenner beauty I think you'd probably look at it and go mm, you know a bit is it a bit cringeworthy I mean she's been very successful and there's definitely a market for it um but I, I do think that and I do really hope that the expert comes back into the fold because it's people that have put you know blood sweat and tears into like you say 20 30 year careers of being artists and given the opportunity to create a brand I really do hope that they um you know, they are taken seriously in terms of the brand development side, like Charlotte and Pat, or as influencers or profluencers or whatever the terminology is now. Um, I hope they're taken seriously because I think there's there's real credibility there. And, and to me, that bolsters my industry. It doesn't. It means that every time there's a sort of hole in a story, it's a gap in my industry. Well, I guess also, you know, from in terms of longevity, you know, you have to wonder if with the Kylie Jenner proposition if Instagram was taken away you know are people in 10 years going to be buying Kylie skin because she posts a tweet you know that's a very different marketing strategy and brand strategy to someone like Charlotte Tilbury so you know it might be hot now but whether or not it'll be no I mean I think a lot of the sort of larger retailers and larger companies often do this sort of piece of work where they go you know this type of customer is an eager experimentalist this type of 
customer is a fanciful follower. So there's, I think when you, when you look at audiences, you tend to have like four types of people that, you know, buy in certain ways. And there are those that want to explore a brand. So they might be more of a Charlotte Tilbury or Pat McGrath type person, or they might be more of a sort of, if she says buy it, buy it kind of customer. You know, I, I do think there's, there's room for all of them. My, my personal preference um, is is something with more expertise behind it. I want to ask you about some of the challenges in the industry. So the personal care sector obviously was hugely impacted by the pandemic and the last 18 months. Um, you delivered a manifesto earlier this year from the British Beauty Council. Can you tell me a bit more about what that was specifically connected to women, female entrepreneurs, people in the industry, and what that means to you? Well, I mean, I think from this, from the outset with the British Beauty Council, there was um, an element of sort of my frustration of being a woman uh, in, a, in, in an industry that, that is not, very taken, not taken very seriously. Um, uh, so there's an element of that sort of within the sort of DNA of the British Beauty Council anyway. And we started our policy work three years ago, but it was only when... Um, we started last year working with the government that I realised they really didn't know anything about our industry. Thank- thankfully, I was armed with a, a report that we um, commissioned called The Value of Beauty. So the first thing to do was really sort of explain the the value of our, the economic value of our industry. And then the next bit was to go in and sort of explain to them the varying jobs within the industry because they just didn't understand that. And as time went on, we we as we had to do the research essentially over the throughout 2020 became very clear that sort of um, if you talk to the office of national statistics, you can start to get numbers extrapolated from data about our workforce and um, our workforce is uh, 88% of our workforce. um, 88% of our businesses are female owned and we have a 95%, 95% of our sector um, SMEs are small medium enterprises so we're an incredibly entrepreneurial industry um and this was all sort of you know i I guess we were sort of in the beginning it was like fighting fires the whole time and then i sort of sat down i thought you know our industry is made up of women diverse communities we are very highly indexed in deprived areas you can enter the industry from any career um, education level at any time in your life so incredibly flexible working. Um, our products are made from nature and science. So we're very in tune with the environment, but we're, we're also very akin to scientific, scientific data. And, you know, going back to then again, the, the sort of female you know, entrepreneurial side, it was very clear that if we were going to um, attract the interest of a conservative government, you know, we would have to ensure that we amplified that message because it was really important to shout about who we were. And um, so during the course of sort of 2020, I was, as a, as a CEO of the British Beauty Council, because I was working with government, I was asked a lot to go on television. What I used to do was actually ask some of my friends or our advisory board members who I knew had big followings to go on and actually shout about the inequality of um, our industry over and above industries like the motor vehicle manufacturing industry or sports activities that are always getting so much love and attention from the government. And actually, economically, we're more viable. I think in some cases, we're double the value um, of, of those industries. And then you've also got the, the other challenge is for us is that our businesses are owned by women and we are a majority female workforce. 
we are double hospitality and double retail in that sense. So whilst the government are focusing on let's help hospitality because we've got to save the, the workforce, our workforce are, we are double the, the women um, in, in our workforce and in, in hospitality. Why was the industry neglected in the last 18 months in terms of support? Was that is that a political... Just historically, they don't know anything about our industry. All industries in Britain are, in fact, globally, are um, defined by a code, a standard industrial classification code. And ours hasn't been updated since 1948, which is why Jacob Rees-Mogg stood up and called us massage parlours, because they are literally like looking at a handbook from the 1950s. So if it, so, to me, it couldn't be any more fucking, you know, aggravating. Because, you know, the equality piece was just so off kilter, you know, so so it was, you know, what we had to look at is what will a Tory government be attracted by? You know, the pink vote, entrepreneurs, that's what they love. You mentioned the 88% number. Um, We know the horrifying statistics about investment generally, less than 2% of investment at VC level goes to women, less than half a percent to black women. It's still hugely underrepresented. Most of that is because a lot of the people investing are men. I've worked with a lot of personal care brands, particularly a um, CBD tampon brand, who was told in investment meetings, I'll give these to my wife, I'll give these to my daughter. Just completely. I was literally just saying that. I was literally, before this, I was talking to Dominic Skinner from Glow Up Makeup Artist, and I was telling exactly the same thing. They either say to you, oh, yes, this is lovely, I'll take it home and let my wife try it. Or so so what part of the fashion industry is this? And we're like, no, 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 this is a whole industry in its own right. I feel like saying, why are you even here? Is that still a huge barrier? And is that something for you personally that you want to impact? Well, next year we are developing now, but next year we'll launch an innovative fund. So we'll have our own fund. Equally, the next three years will probably be about nurturing the industry and trying to get it back on track. But then the sort of latter three years of probably my tenure will be more about growth and that's where I really want to change the investment game you know ideally and essentially what we're looking to do at the British Beauty Council is future-proof the industry and it's not just about turning the heads of um, the, the government and politicians it's about really being attractive to business leaders and people that do want to invest um, in this sector and making them understand not just what we deliver in terms of the economics, but purpose, sustainability, inclusivity, quality, you know, and it's actually very frustrating. You know, I've, I've helped people um, try to raise funds and it's increasingly frustrating. And then, you know, you get a bit of money and then you launch a brand and you've got to go back and get more money and then you've got to do it all over again. The whole system seems to be very strange to me because you're in a constant cycle of funding. I'm sure you've heard a whole range of horrifying and very distressing and sad stories from businesses in the last year or so have there been any positive outcomes for this industry from covid obviously the mental health and stress has been really very damaging to everybody not just our industry but i think for an industry where you are generally in close contact with somebody there was the fear in the beginning and then there was a frustration towards the end and the fact is is that you're used to being with other people it's a very social industry the positives are e-commerce, the fast tracking of our digital presence, that's been really interesting. And I think that's really 
a, a good way to go. But also the fact that we love going back to get, you know, we love our hairdressers, you know, and we love a massage. And so there's a sort of renewed respect and a renewed love for our sector in a lot of ways, because I don't think we, I don't think a lot of people realise how much they missed us until they couldn't have us. Obviously, we've got the visibility of the Chancellor and the Prime Minister, love them or hate them, um, that they are the government that are that, that we need to support us at this given time. I, I just think also we've all come together. It's been unifying in many ways. Really unifying. And I think the thing is, is that the industry is not as disparate and fractured as it once was. People have created WhatsApp groups and reached over the fence to kind of support each other. And that's been really beautiful to see. I mean, in terms of business, actually, what's been really interesting is a lot of the smaller brands had the opportunity to sell or, or the, the, the playing field was slightly leveled during COVID because no one had shelves to walk down. No, there were no aisles to walk down. There's no POS in the in the no, no gondola ends, nothing. There was none of that. It was really how much you advocated your voice. And so purpose was really driving sales. And so those brands that really were built on purpose with with really vocal and very interesting brand founders, however small they were, really found themselves some success, which I think was fabulous. And and this is a sort of twofold thing, but equally businesses that are sort of local businesses have done very well. There's a renewed understanding that actually going to those local local businesses and supporting them is part of that community collaboration that we all were deprived of. So yeah, it is about community and coming together. And I think that sort of, you know, we do stay local. We haven't gone back to the way it was before. How's it been for you as a busy person in business running your own company? And has it been depressing and sad or has it have you just met amazing people? Has it been really wearing? I think it's been sort of a mixture of everything, really. I think it's been I think for the mo for the first year, I didn't really stop. So I didn't really think about what it was. I was so worried about helping other people that I didn't stop and think what it was going to do to me personally. And maybe that was a sort of tactic of mine to cope was my coping mechanism. And then on the flip side of that, you kind of, when I have to recall what we went through, I do get very emotional. So I think there's an element of PTSD. I I wouldn't say I wasn't depressed. I mean, I was absolutely scared shitless in the beginning, like everyone else, but I've got you know, people that rely on me, employees and, um, you know, members of our organisation, my children. So you're sort of having to brave it out, like kind of, you know, tough it out and go, yeah, it's all going to be okay, you know. You kind of don't want to indulge how scary it might be because then everything unravels. I I don't think I ever admitted how absolutely fucking terrified I was. I literally thought it was the end of the world. I mean, it was, you know, it was as it was for everybody. I don't think anyone's unscathed from it. But I think that as a society, we're very nimble. You've previously talked about the challenges for the beauty industry, particularly relating to sustainability with packaging and manufacturing. What are some of the challenges for the industry? And if you are someone starting a business now in this industry, does sustainability just have to be baked into it from the beginning or is it something that people can retroactively fit i think it has to be built in i mean next year um there will be uh, a government imposed plastics tax and so it will be based on sort of 
every component of your pack. So not just the outer box, but the bottle, you know, the ferrule, the tube inside, the actuator, the whole thing. So that's going to affect our industry hugely. I mean, everything from tan packs to speed sticks to toothbrushes to, you know, beauty products. And, and you know, I have a feeling that's going to be a big focus for us at the beginning of the year. I do believe that we should reduce plastic. But equally, I think that if we if you're not aware of the plastics tax, you need to probably do a bit of research. I'm really conscious of your time, but I do have a few more questions. So I'm going to just quick fire at you. What's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given about running a business? Uh, put off till tomorrow a decision you should have made today. I've made two impulsive decisions and somebody told me to wait. I'm not very patient. So it was just, you know, put it off till tomorrow. I don't make a decision yet. And I still struggle a little bit with that. But, you know, it's telling an impulsive person not to be impulsive or an impatient person not to be so impatient is really not a great way of describing it. But but my, it was my dad and he said to me, just put off till tomorrow what you should have done today. Don't cause yourself any aggravation. Wait, you might think differently when you wake up tomorrow. So. You're a hugely successful CEO. You've been awarded an MBE for services to the cosmetics industry you have an enviable CV. Do you ever take time to enjoy your achievements or is it just a constant and relentless pursuit? No, yeah, that's a weird one. I mean, I did actually go on a, a health retreat, a wellness retreat uh, two weekends ago. It was the first time in a very, very long time I've done something for myself, to be honest, um, and I really enjoyed it and it really kind of reinvigorated me. And also we did, um, the British Beauty Council had an away day, which was really good fun. And, and I got to hear from the executive board how, they thought I had what I had done over the past three years. So sometimes, sometimes yes, but not that often. It's you. You have to be forced into stopping. I did actually say today on a meeting that now is time for me to pause and reflect. So I, I'm very conscious that I need to do that. What have you found to be the biggest myth or assumption about running a business, and has it stacked up? Oh goodness, there's so many. Um, I think there's just always an assumption and social media sort of exacerbates it that if you're doing well, you find it easy. I mean, a lot of people struggle with running businesses. Um, and a lot of people think that, you know, if you took my career, a lot of people think, oh, hasn't she done well? But I've not really done any of it on my own. There's always been a thousand other people around me helping, you know. So whether that's accountants and lawyers or friends and family or business partners or acquaintances or colleagues. You know, I own a PR agency and I run the British Beauty Council. I often speak to friends of mine who run other PR agencies um, and they go, oh, yeah, I'm really struggling with recruiting staff at the moment or, you know, isn't it a struggle to send product out all the time if you're working from home? And, you know, so I don't, nothing, I think sometimes you you see a figurehead of a company or a brand or something and you make it a very quick assumption that it's them alone that's been the key mm. ingredient to its success and I don't think there ever is a key ingredient I think there's always a sort of it's a mixture of the right ingredients yeah my dad always used to say people always confuse composure for ease definitely I think people put a front on I think social media does exacerbate that I mean everybody's living their best life on social media and sometimes you don't really know what's going on behind the scenes um I think we're starting to be a bit more open and um, sharing a little bit more, mainly because we all realise that we are going to enter into a mental health crisis relatively soon and, you know, let's get ahead of the game and let's start talking to each other and sharing how we're really feeling. So, you know, I think composure and ease is definitely 
a big myth. How do you keep learning? Do you listen to podcasts? Do you read books? Do you travel? Do you talk to people? What are your processes for making sure that you keep learning? All of the above, really. We hold um, uh, regular town halls with people from across the industry. So we've recently had an LGBTQIA town hall. uh, And I've got an Instagram live tonight with um, a barber called Kerry. Uh, Kerry Blue, I believe, is their Instagram handle. And they are um, uh, the founder of an organization called Hair Has No Gender, non-binary. So I've been learning a lot about pronouns and... It's very interesting when I actually went on to this platform and it asked you for your pronouns because it's International Pronouns Day today. Um, and I, I was like, well, that's great. Yeah. About two months ago, the platform, it's Squadcast, started doing that and I noticed it too and I thought that was interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I just think I really want to understand a little bit more about that and really understanding people's um, real experiences. You know, my job is to sort of coordinate a large industry that has you know upwards of half a million people in it and I it's not my experience it's not my agenda necessarily it's you know it's those of our members and our advisors and so yeah I really I do listen a lot to them I really enjoy those town halls they can be very emotional I tend to cry on most of them Um, but they are people are really open and they're really sharing and so it's those those are really great i read i read a lot uh i listen to podcasts i don't watch very much television uh but i am very social as well so this podcast is called the busyness podcast productivity can be challenging in an environment where everyone is expected to be busy all the time we talked about it a minute ago with the lens of social media if you had an extra hour in the day what would you use it for oh i'd go swimming oh how lovely yeah i just i really like swimming are we talking like warm spa swimming pool or are we talking like cold swimming in a lake oh god no 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 cold no lake either a beach or just just a, just but but a swimming pool is fine I don't even mind the smell of chlorine I just really like the floating in water I like the motion I just find it very peaceful and very easing yeah and to finish what's next for you and what's next for the British Beauty Council so we are um, repositioning our pillars so we will launch a sort of um, we'll do a, we're doing a reset at the moment so what we have to do is look at what we've done what we've achieved where we want to go next um, pretty sure I know what that is but I have to write our roadmap um, so I am I've got cop 26 which is coming up November for, I'm going on the 2nd of November. So that's really exciting because the British Beauty Council are, as far as I'm aware, the only industry body in our sector that's been given observer status to the Blue Zone. So that's that's great, um, which is very exciting because I will be running around trying to find Joe Biden and John Kerry. Um, and, um, and then after that, we'll be really just looking at a, a bit of a pause and then resetting so we can kind of hit the road running in January. That's awesome. Millie, thank you so much for your time. I'm very, very grateful you've given me the time. I I have no doubt that many people in this industry and others will benefit hugely from what you've shared today. So thank you very much. No, thank you for having me. Lovely to speak to you.